0: We are living in what I would call a seeing-is-believing culture. Um, Just think about it. Just go through maybe the last number of years, major things that have happened that relate to our country, and just think about that reality. For example, when Saddam Hussein was captured, Um, you heard the news, but what did you want to do? You wanted to see the picture. You remember when Osama bin Laden was assassinated or killed? There was a cry from our culture. We want to see the body. We want proof that he's been taken care of, so to speak. You remember the day when the terrorists went into the Twin Towers? And as soon as you found out about it, you were kind of glued to the TV because you were watching. You could actually see the events unfold throughout the day. There are all sorts of different ways that we can say that this culture is a seeing-is-believing culture. And, you know, these are just a few of the examples. You know, the tsunamis. Um, Do you guys remember seeing pictures of that? We see the after effects of all that, but we see this live stuff. And just think, you know, maybe 200 years ago, all you had was word of mouth. All you had was newspapers. But at least then, you trusted what was written. Today, how much of what is written do you trust? Now, we're, we're far more a seeing-is-believing culture. You know, it might be, you know, on the, on the Internet, but we're not satisfied until we actually see it. And better yet, watch it. Because even just a plain picture by itself can be, you know, um, misunderstood. And recently, I mean, just the past, this past week, all these tornadoes that hit the Midwest. And, you know, just the devastation. And, and we're able to actually go and visit and, and, and listen to people who have experienced those things. And it's just, boom, almost after it happens. We're used to that. It's part of our culture. It's part of how we think. It's part of how we behave. It's what we expect. And so it's not necessarily a bad thing. But in spiritual matters... Seeing really is not believing. It is not ultimately the reality that we want to live by um, in a spiritual realm. But there are some exceptions, and I want to make sure that we don't kind of just brush all sight as being irrelevant and unimportant. Turning your Bibles actually to the end of John's Gospel and chapter 21 and verse 24, and I want you to notice what John says about what he has been doing. This is John speaking about himself. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. But what is he saying? He's saying, I saw this. I am a personal witness to this. In other words, for him, seeing is what? believe The the fact that I am giving you testimony is because I was there to see it. So there certainly is grounds for the importance of proving facts and evidence based on eyewitness accounts. Turn now, if you would please, to 1 Corinthians 15. This is what we began our whole time with. This is the Apostle Paul, who in this classic passage is is fashioning the proof of the resurrection, not only based on Scripture, which is really, really important, but then he moves from Scripture, where it says, as it was written, as you know, Scripture says, and then he, he starts using this word, appeared. He, he says there in verse 3 and following, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still Alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. To me. He appeared, he appeared, he appeared, he appeared. This is evidence. This is proof. Not only did Jesus rise from the tomb, like the scripture said, we have all these people that are eyewitnesses of the same person that was taken by the soldiers, was nailed to a cross, hung there and died, and put in a tomb that was sealed. You have all these witnesses that are saying, but I saw him after that. I saw him after that. I saw him after that. I saw him. We saw him. So there is a, there is a basis here for seeing that does lead to belief but in our present passage and really in so much of our christian walk we do wrestle with this whole concept of believing god when we do not see him believing what jesus says when he is not present with us being sure that the promise that he's giving us is actually something i can trust him because he's not sitting in front of me across the table at starbucks talking to me about my problems and giving me direction. We don't see him. And because we don't see him, sometimes we struggle. So people ask the question, how can I believe in a Jesus I cannot see? How can I be sure he understands my problems when he is not here presently, physically with me to see my struggle and my need? How do I know he cares? How do I know he understands? How do I know he is able to help? I mean, sometimes you probably have gone to God in prayer over a certain issue. You're crying out to him. And in that whole crying out and the praying and the waiting, it just seems like he's silent. And you're saying, does he even know? Does he even understand? Does he even comprehend my circumstance? Now, we know theologically the answer, right? Right. But there's something about someone who is right there in front of you, who's speaking to you, that kind of calms you and says, hey, this is what I want you to do. And so we, we struggle with, does he really understand? Because if, if I could see him, if I could hear his voice, then I would be comforted by what he has to say. Now, answers to questions like that are going to be fleshed out in our text today and much more. So first, let's just kind of think of the, the structure of what we've read in this passage. Chapter 4, beginning at verse 43 through 54. First of all, you have what I'm calling just the setting. This is not your, your outline, okay? This is the setting. We're just looking at the structure. There's the setting. Then there's the story about the, the official or the nobleman and his dying son. And then ultimately at the end, you have this, this one verse that says, now this is the second sign. So you've got the setting you've got the story and you've got the sign and there's there's this, there's this kind of package deal that's going on and and John is, is presenting some truth here to help us understand and to push us toward the significance of what he's been going through through this whole gospel so um, as we here we go um, as we continue on here, I want us to think through a little bit about this whole idea that uh, in spiritual matters, seeing is not believing. And, and we find that revealed in this passage through three activities that, that Jesus recorded or that, that John records in this text. Three activities of Jesus. The first one is at his coming. Secondly, at his, or when he rebukes. And thirdly, when he heals. But let's just pause for a moment and let's just join together in prayer and ask God for his strength. Lord, this is your word, and we are your people, and we are desperate to know you, to understand you, to learn from you. I ask, Lord, as we have come to gather to, together today, Lord, whatever burdens or struggles that we have, Lord, that we would bring them to you as your word is, is unfolded. Lord, as your Holy Spirit works, Lord, help us to be sensitive and tender to what it is you're doing Um, In our hearts and in our lives, Lord, would you have freedom? Allow me as your messenger simply to be the mouthpiece for this text. And, Lord, what you desire for us to have would come through. Lord, that we would see you, that we would see in your glory, in your majesty, just like we sang this morning. Lord, you are an awesome God. You have given us so much. Lord, today we ask for more. Feed us now once again with your truth, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Let's begin back at verse 43 and through verse 45. And I want to I read this passage one more time. After the two days, he departed from Galilee, parentheses now, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet is, has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So, what are these verses telling us? What is John teaching us just in these few verses? I think the initial place that we kind of go to when we read a a little section like this is, ah, this is just transitional stuff, moving us from one place to another, right? I mean, certainly there is an element of transition that is there. But I want you to notice something that is really helpful for us because we want to be careful that we don't just kind of we don't just rush ahead without thinking through the significance of what is being communicated here. Because ultimately, I think what, what Jesus is communicating through these verses is this first point, and that is at his coming, Jesus is exposing the crisis of unbelief. He's exposing the crisis of unbelief. Now, that may be hard for us to see just with a cursory read. But I want us to think through what John is saying. And remember, John is very careful to give details that are important. When someone is writing a story, they're choosing details to to help you understand the story, right? There's no just stuff that's thrown in there for for no reason. This, This is purposeful. So notice once again, it says, after the two days he departed for Galilee. Well, what are the two days he's talking about? Where did he come up with these two days? Why is that significant? Well, this goes back to the request by the Samaritan people that came out from the village, remember, to where Jesus was, and they welcomed him and wanted him to stay with them for two days because they heard the testimony of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman who went into the village and said, Come, hear a man who told me everything I ever did. And so they were... Listening and watching this woman, the change that was there, and they said, Come, we want you to stay with us. So he stays with them for two days. And notice what what we find. Look at verse 41 of, of this passage. We'll read verse 41 and 42. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Two days of encountering Jesus, and they come to this conclusion. So this is the two days that are being talked about. After these two days, Jesus then moves. And there's some significance that's going on here. He's moving from the territory of the Samaritans back into the territory of the Jews. Because you remember when he left uh, Jerusalem, he went down through Samaria, right? He went into that Samaritan territory. Remember, there was a whole different mindset philosophically and religiously that he was entering as well as the cultural attitudes about the Samaritans. But now he's stepping outside of that realm and he's back into the realm of Judaism in that region. So why is that significant? Well, it helps us understand why John puts the parentheses in here. Let's just read this one more time. Here we have this proverb that really seems out of place, It seems to contradict everything else that's being said. It says, for Jesus himself has testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Now, automatically you hear that, you think, ah, Nazareth. He He has no honor in Nazareth. But the idea of this word hometown can also be homeland, can also be his people. And who are the people that are being talked about here? Well, there's the Samaritans, and then there's the Jews. These are Jews. Now, they're not the sophisticated, um, you know, high-class, educated Jews that Jesus left from Jerusalem. They are the country Jews, but they're Jews, nonetheless. That's important for us to understand, because what John is telling us by putting that parentheses there is that Jesus is, is leaving an area where he has been received, and seen for who He really is, the Savior of the world, and He's now walking into a territory amongst a people who reject Him. Remember, He came to His own and His own what? Received Him not. That's earlier in this gospel. Now, when I say all that, you kind of read the next few lines kind of differently. Notice, well, just, just pause there for a minute. I remember one one time when, uh, a number of times when I've gone out of the country, and I've come, I've been gone for a while, been out in the middle of nowhere, and I come back and I I finally land in the United States. Anyone know what I'm kind of getting at here? You've been somewhere else. It's kind of been different. It's kind of been weird. Cultures, you know, foreign to you, obviously but something that maybe you haven't experienced and there's something just about coming back in the United States, landing in an airport in Miami or JFK or San Francisco and you get off the plane and you think to yourself, I'm home. Now, you know, for me it might be landing in Miami and I'm thinking, oh, I'm home. Well, wait a second, there's a few thousand miles distance between me and Miami, right? Right? but there's something about being in the territory that is part of my country, that is part of my greater family, and I'm I'm home, and you're you're walking around, and you're seeing people you've never met before, and you're like, hey, you're an American. You're part of my family. I'm I'm home. I'm, I'm here, right? I mean, so there's that kind of thing that takes place, and there's something wonderful about that family, but there's a sense that we may be reading verse 45 in that way. Jesus has gone Uh, and now the the crowds of the Jews are excited to see him and they are welcoming him back into their territory. And they are. But notice what what John tells us. He says in verse uh, 45 there, "...so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, (laughs) having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast." For they too had gone to the feast. You can just imagine him kind of, you know, not getting off the plane, but, you know, walking, walking up through the, the valley and, you know, maybe up the hill and all the people say, ah, there's this Jesus. Woohoo! And the crowd starts gathering and they're celebrating, they're welcoming. Oh, come, come, come. We want you here. Now we could read that and say, isn't this great? Isn't this fantastic how the gospel has changed these people already? But John's very careful to give us some details. And these details are really important. What does he say? He says, they welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Oh, okay. So what's the big deal with that, Pastor Rod? We'll turn back to John chapter 2 and verse 23 and following where we see the account of what takes place during the feast. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, talking about Jesus, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Yes! Yes, they believed! Hmm. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, they believed, but in a superficial way. And Jesus could see into their heart, and he could see that it wasn't genuine belief at all. They saw him simply as a miracle worker. Someone come to do miracles, yes, that they may benefit from, but also they may observe and, I think, also be entertained by. So now, yeah, come back to our territory. Oh, by the way, You know the wine that you changed? Can you do some more of that? See, there's there's a distorted understanding of who Jesus is, but that's why they're welcoming him, not as the Messiah, but as a miracle worker. And friends, there's a caution for us here. And the caution for us is that it is so subtle, but it is possible and I think is common that many who identify themselves as Christians, many who will come to church or go to church on any particular Sunday may be approaching this relationship with God not so much as He being the Messiah, but He as being the one who does these wonderful things for me and I want to see it, and I want to be amazed by it. But it's seeing him more as a miracle worker than actually as the Messiah. It's so easy to be snowed by what we might consider to be the fluff and the flare and the incredible pizzazz that you can see in many contexts and actually be settled on the truth that we know is residing in the word that we feed on and that we, we love and we embrace. Friends, it is subtle, but nonetheless a reality. And that's why what's being talked about here and what, what John is identifying for us is that there, were, there was this, this kind of faith or belief that really wasn't genuine faith. It was superficial. And this superficial faith ultimately um, is a distraction and it is a distortion of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Ultimately, we know that Jesus didn't come just to perform miracles and to perform signs and wonders and stuff. That was part of his package, but it wasn't ultimately why he came. Why did he come? John 10.10, 10, I have come that they may have what? Life and have it abundantly. Now, friends, just just a caution. Be very, very careful that you are not caught up in the pursuit of going and observing and seeing and experiencing signs and wonders. I remember through my Christian history there have been a number of movements that have taken place where it seems like you know the Holy Spirit is being poured out in this place, and God's people from all over the place go, you've got to go there because God's pouring out. Miracles and these crazy, it's happening over there. Oh, and then the, the church rushes over there. We've got to go over there to where it is. And there's this pursuit of the signs and wonder stuff perceived to the neglect of simply understanding that your walk with God is a time in the Word with the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, you can, you can worship those things that Jesus Christ did as opposed to worshiping Him. We must be very, very careful. So abundant life is not like my wife and I saw as we were down in the uh, Monterey Carmel uh, area. It's it's not having a mansion in Carmel and being able to play Pebble Beach every day the rest of your life. Although, (laughs) sounds like a good plan. At least the golf part does, right? Uh, Abundant life is not simply having so much money and stuff that you don't need to work and... Um, you can just go wherever you want, you can travel wherever you want, free from care, free from sickness, free from trouble. That's not what we're talking as far as abundant life. Abundant life is new life in Christ that is rooted in the change that takes place through the gospel. Now hear this, it is a holy spiritual reality. People who, who live um, with the consequences of their sin, as, as difficult and as much of a struggle as they can be, can also have abundant life. People who have lost their money, lost their homes, lost their job, lost their health, can still live lives that are abundant. People who have been abused, who have been hurt, who have been oppressed, can still live lives that are abundant. People who have lost loved ones or are struggling with a loved one who may be lost soon, can live their lives in an abundant way because this abundant life is not rooted in my circumstances. It's rooted in who I am because of who Christ is who covers me and strengthens me and gives me perspective and, and freshness in life for every day. People who are working through, through you know, relational mess and, and daily physical pain and wondering where the next paycheck is going to come from. All are people who can live abundant lives. We must recognize that abundant life is not more stuff. Jesus doesn't say, and God doesn't say, hey, you're the king of your life. I'm going to give you everything you need so you can be that king or be that queen. He says, no, no, no. He says, I'm the king. You're my slaves. But listen, as your king and as my slaves, I I will give you what you need. And you know, when when we're focused on the the stuff, we're focused on the here and now, aren't we? As opposed to what God has in store for us. And maybe the the reality is that we are not as enamored with the reality of heaven as we should be. And the great privilege of our inheritance and the joy of being part of that multitude that is going to be joined together in heaven. So friends, just be cautious here because there there is a subtlety that, that takes place. Now, Let's, uh, let's continue on. But There's some chilling verses in Scripture. I quoted one a little bit, um, and I'm jumping ahead here. Yeah, I'm sorry about that, guys. They welcomed him. All right, good. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, what's going on here is this, this battle ultimately for and with unbelief. There's a battle with unbelief. And listen, friends, just because you're a child of God does not mean that the battle for unbelief is over, right? You know, when you're facing some kind of a struggle, you're, you're going to say either to God, God, I am going to do this. I'm going to follow your will. I'm going to listen to your counsel. Or you know what? I just I can't believe you. I, I just can't trust what you're saying. I'm struggling with it. Chilling verse would be that one I just quoted. You know, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. It's a chilling verse, but verse 12 of chapter 1 and verse 13 are a, a wonderful warming verse. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And were born not of blood, but the will of, uh, nor by the will of the flesh, that means ourselves, nor the will of man, but of God. So here in the context, Jesus is is leaving Samaria. Let's just kind of get the flow again. He's leaving Samaria where he truly was received by the people, and people believed him as the Savior of the world, and he is entering back into the territory of the Jews who are welcoming him, but not as the Messiah, not like the Samaritans were, but as a miracle worker. And unlike the genuine belief of the Samaritans, the Jews' belief is superficial. Okay? And they're... They're really longing for a sign. So that's the setting. Now we get into the story, and that's this part here. Let's, let's jump in and look at verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And Capernaum, at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When the man heard that Jesus had come from Judea in Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now, Um, how does Jesus respond to this man's request? Sure, I'll go with you. Would that be a help? Is that how he responds? No, he responds in this way where Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, there's a part of you, if you're reading the story and you're you're getting yourself familiar with the story, you're saying, what's going on here? I mean, how, how cold can Jesus be? This guy's losing his son. He travels about 25 miles from Cana to Capernaum, or sorry, from Capernaum to Cana, and he's, I'm sure, along the journey thinking to himself, you know, my son is dying, this is horrible and struggling with it all. Maybe, just maybe, I can find this, this one who's called Jesus, who I know changed the water into wine, but also... I heard what happened at the feasts, and, and he's, you know, he's got these incredible you know, ways of dealing with people and their, their struggles, and I wonder if I could just find him, first of all, and then secondly, if, if I could just ask him if he would come home to me, which is a 25-mile journey on foot. Okay, I mean, you see, this is not, a, this is not an easy task for him, right? And yet, what happens? He gets there, and Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, (laughs) you will not believe. Jesus rebukes him. Well, that's what it appears like anyway. Um, Like I said, this seems so harsh. But what what we need to understand here is this, that the Greek language, the, the word you, is actually a plural you. What Jesus is doing is he's taking advantage of this request by this nobleman He's taking advantage of it as as an opportunity to rebuke the Galileans. Not the man in particular, but the Galileans in general, who are welcoming him for all the wrong reasons. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. In other words, you will not believe unless you see these things. It's a very harsh rebuke, but it's a rebuke nonetheless. And so here Jesus is exposing the character of this unbelief, the fact that it is fashioned and shaped by the need to see signs and wonders or to be enamored by signs and wonders. Now, I don't know that it happens as much today, but I remember when I was, you know, it was probably in the 80s or so, you turn the TV on and there was just constantly televangelists on. Do you guys remember that, that season? It really isn't that much anymore. At least I don't think so because we don't have TV. Well, we have a TV, but... You know, we don't have cable, and so we don't see that kind of stuff. But I just remember it was always on. There was always someone saying, you know, put your hand on the TV, or you know, throwing canes, and I mean, it, it was. And you know, if you didn't get to see that, good for you. But there was this kind of—it was like just you know, miracles and power and zap and wow and all this kind of stuff was going on. And a lot of these, a lot of these guys were uncovered for you know, for things that they. Um, they were doing. The one guy in particular, you may be aware of this, but he had this big, huge, you know, healing kind of a ministry, and, you know, he would go from place to place, and his wife would help him, and, you know, and they would, they would have cards when you came in that you'd fill out, just like you would kind of do, you know, some of you came visited today, you know, you're filling out, you know, information, and, you know, what problems you how can we pray for you, blah, blah, blah. Well, what would happen is that um, he had a hearing aid, except there wasn't a hearing aid his hearing aid was actually a receiver. And his wife would take the cards and she'd read through the cards and she would speak to him in this receiver and say, there's a man by the name of John who has, you know, who has a problem with his knee. And so he's asking for prayer for healing. And so this person would be up and say, God's telling me there's, there's a man by the name of John. And... and You have a problem in your leg, you know, and he would get there dramatically. But it all was exposed as being this just incredible facade and emptiness. But get this, people came in droves to that kind of stuff. It's part of the nature of man to be enamored with these things. But Jesus here is rebuking them. In fact, as we look in the Gospels, the expression signs and wonders is primarily, I think it's only used a few times, it's primarily used um, referring to ways in which false teachers and charlatans exercise their trade and deception. You might want to turn there to Mark chapter 13. There's also a parallel passage in Matthew's Gospel, but listen to what Jesus says here. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. So there's this real negative perspective on these signs and wonders in the Gospels. That's not the only time it's mentioned in Scriptures, and there are times, obviously, where signs and wonders have their rightful place. But sadly, uh, many people um, of this generation, I think our generation too, um, will believe anything if it is impressive outwardly. Dick Lucas, who's a pastor in England, says this. We live in an age that finds it easier to believe in flying saucers than in Christ. And you might even add to that Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, any other kind of man, right, than in Christ. Because we are so caught up with that kind of stuff. You know, with with all the Twilight movies that have taken place, do people actually think that there are vampires wandering around? Werewolves and things like that—is this just a, a lone planet, or are there places all over the place? You know, and you, you, your mind wanders because your your mind is filled with all these ideas. Now, remember what the, this gospel is all about. Every story contained in this gospel is leading us down a road to understand that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that in understanding that, that we would believe, and, and understanding that belief or embracing that belief, we would have life. That's the goal. That's the purpose of every story is to take us down that path and for us to see the beauty of the evidence that is there. But sadly, it isn't usually that people need more evidence. What usually happens is that they are so impressed with superficial, flashy stuff that they are distracted from the real evidences before them and they embrace and they look at the false stuff that is there. And this is just a warning to us. There's a rebuke to the Galileans, but there's a warning, I think, that we need to check. Are are you impressed by that kind of stuff? Does that capture you? Does that grab you? Does that lead you maybe down a path that is not helpful? Let's just move to the business world as as an example here. Um, Matt, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I want to enter the HR world for a minute here, okay? And just imagine that, that Matt is... Matt is over here. He works HR for Chevron, that kind of stuff, okay? So Matt is going to hire someone into um, his department, and he has a stack of resumes. And as you go through those stack of resumes, what does everyone do with their resume? They start pouring it on, right? You know, I worked at this place, and I did this, and I did that, and I grew this whole department, and I led this team, and I accomplished this, and... A good HR people is going to let some of that stuff go because some of it may be true, but he's also going to be able to see through the fluff. And he's going to get down and try his best to understand whether or not this person is going to be the kind of worker that's going to have character and the kind of worker that is going to be helpful for that business or for that company ultimately to be ethical and to have a good work ethic and to make sure that the company moves ahead rather than just getting someone who's full of fluff and just kind of you know, splash it out there on a resume to try and impress. Am I right, Matt? Shh, thank you. <laughs> Glad to hear that. You see, it's, it's natural for people to put a lot of fluff out there and to try and impress with that. And oftentimes, we are impressed by that kind of stuff. So Jesus here goes for the jugular. He rebukes them for belief that is based on signs and wonders. Now as we turn our attention now to the story at hand, um, he's going to take us really from a place, you might want to say, of of superficiality to a place of genuine belief in Christ. And this is really ultimately where where we're driving in this passage. But we needed to kind of lay the foundation there. But there is this rampant unbelief, there's this rampant superficial belief, which really ultimately is unbelief, right? It's embraced by the, the Jews, in particular, Jesus rebukes them in general, happens to be in the context of this story and this encounter with this man. But now let's think about what's going on with this, this man in particular. And let's just think here about the distance again. I just wanted to throw a map up there if you can see it. Cana is uh, this is not working there. it is. There you go, maybe not. But Cana is up there by the brown arrow, and Capernaum is over there. It looks like the target. This is quite a journey. We talk about walking 25 miles. Anyone here walk 25 miles regularly? Yeah? Across rugged terrain? Yeah. Um, you know, and a, a, few, things, a few things that we need, to, we need to take notice of here. We're talking here about an official, a nobleman, literally a king's man. That's what the word actually literally means. So here we have someone who is functioning the capacity um, for the king. Okay, so he, had, he has a position of leadership, a position of oversight, an important person. Now, one of the questions I'm asking myself is, okay, um, why are you making this journey? If you are a position, you know, in that kind of position, why are you going? Anyone have any ideas as to why he might be the one going? It was really important to him. It was his son. I'm going to go take care of this myself. I'm going I'm to... I'm going to go find this person myself. right? So he has this life and death issue. He had heard about Jesus, we're told. He was desperate to do anything, even to walk all this distance to find him. And I, I try to get myself into the head of, of this man, and maybe you can too. And, you know, I've, I have four children, and... and Um, You know, in in the raising of our kids or the the birthing of our kids, there have been times of of crisis. And my mind goes back to one. I don't mean to embarrass her, but it was my daughter Deanna's birth. And um, I remember being at work and getting a phone call from a friend saying, Rod, Elia is writhing on the floor. She's in pain. The ambulance is coming. And she's, what, seven months pregnant? And... um, um, you know, you drop everything, you get in your car, and you drive, and we're out in the country, and so it was a little drive to get home, and in a car that didn't go very fast, and, um, you know, I, I pull up, and all the, all the fire department and ambulance is there, and I go in, and they're attending to her, and they don't know what it is, but she's in pain, they rush her to the hospital, I'm in the car behind, and getting to the hospital, the whole time, I'm thinking to myself, God, what is, what is going on here, you know, I, I I mean, save my wife. I was concerned about her life. I was concerned about the life of the baby. And these are, those are tough times. A lot of things, a lot of questions entered my mind at that point in time. And, um, you know, and yet God um, through it took care of my wife. They didn't know exactly what was going on. Immediate a uh, section was, uh, you know, took place and, and ultimately my daughter came in early. Um, and uh, we praise the Lord for his health and his provision in that. But but these are these are times when you say as a parent, you know what, nothing else matters. It doesn't matter my status, it doesn't matter what else is going on, whether I had a, you know, a luncheon planned or something like that. It's just like psh, I'm gone. Family is important, right? Now, here you have this man who's saying, My son is dying. Here is a possible solution. It's a person that seems to have proved himself. I've heard about him. I'm going to go. I'm going to seek him out. And so, what we have here, I believe, as we begin is what I'm calling a simple faith. A simple faith. He heard about Jesus. He hasn't encountered him yet, he hasn't met him yet, but he's heard about him. Now, we don't know. To what degree, but I don't know necessarily based on the data that John has given us that he's heard anything except for the fact that he turned water to wine and um, he performed these signs and wonders in, in Jerusalem. So he just, he just heard about him. That's, that's a small thing to go off of. And I'm going to walk 25 miles. I'm going to go to this place and maybe, just maybe, he is going to be there. Okay? Now, uh, it's what's interesting here is that when Jesus rebukes him, how does he respond? He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't really do anything. He is not concerned about the signs and wonders. All he's concerned about is what his son come, come home with me. Can you help me with my son? all he's concerned about. And so this this simple faith that I believe also moves to what I'm calling a growing faith. There is this growth that takes place because Jesus then looks at him in verse 49. It says, the official said to him, sir, come down uh, before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Now, the the, the word go there, from my understanding, has an idea of of more kind of like you're dismissed. Okay, so there's kind of this negative it's positive here, like, you know, you know I, I've spent all this time, and it's like, you know, <laughs> 25 miles later, oh, there he is, there's Jesus, okay, Jesus, <laughs> my son's dying, he's laying in bed, he's sick, <laughs> unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe, you know? you know, and then you do the cheetah, yeah, yeah, yeah thing, right, and, and then he says, Jesus, come, I mean, he doesn't even respond to it, Jesus, come, or my son will die. And Jesus says, You're dismissed. He will live. (laughs) What what, what in the world? But yet, how does he respond? He doesn't challenge and say, Listen, I've come 25 miles and I am a nobleman and I need for you to come with me to my house because my son's dying. Trying to pull some rank on it. No, he turns around he leaves. Now, there's a growing faith here. I can't wrap my hands around exactly you know, when this point is taking place, but we see this growth taking place. But well, why, why else would he turn around and leave except there was something there that says, all right, that's all I need. And so he says, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke and went on his way. Jesus wasn't mocking. He was speaking his truth. He was giving his word. And since some may ask, as I mentioned earlier, how can I put my trust in, in a God who has left this earth and gone to heaven? How can I trust Jesus when I can't see him? How do I believe when Jesus isn't there? And the, the, the answer given in the New Testament is this. You don't have to have the presence of Jesus before you. What you need is his word. And when I take him at his word, when I live by it, when, that, uh, when I embrace it, when I am obedient to it, that is faith. You don't have to physically see Jesus. You don't have to physically hear Jesus. You don't have to you know, have, have this feeling that Jesus is, is present with you. His word is just as sufficient as if he was sitting across the table at Starbucks or in your living room or by that hospital bed. He is speaking to you, giving you direction, giving you guidance, and it is his word. And he wants you to listen and pay attention and not not be obedient because, you know, good Christians always obey. But be obedient because I'm your Savior. I'm the one who cares. I have, I, 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 I figured this out. I know what's best. Listen to my counsel. Be obedient so that it will go well with you. We need his word. And that growth then transitions into what I'm calling a certain faith. A certain faith. Look at verse. 51 and following and he was going down his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering so he asked them the hour when he began to get better you see what's going on here he's beginning to connect dots right this this growing faith now is starting to grow rapidly what what hour did he get better and they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that he, that, that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. Now, just imagine the scene um, back in his hometown, in his, in his home, and his son is laying there on the bed, and it's almost the seventh hour, which would be 1 o'clock in the afternoon. So this is the heat of the day in sticky Capernaum. The sun is kind of, you know, moaning and writhing because of this high fever. You know what that's like because you've probably been there, whether you've experienced it personally or whether you've attended someone that's been going through that. And the mother is trying to keep his temperature down, and so she's, she's dabbing, you know, cold cloths on his head and on his body. And She turns around, and she starts to, to dip this, this cloth in some cool water and going back to his body, and there he is at the seventh hour sitting up saying, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, or whatever it is. No, the text doesn't tell us that. It's like, the fever's gone. And there's rejoicing in the house, right? I mean, it's just amazing rejoicing. And rejoicing is such that someone in the household says to a servant, go, tell your master, your son is well. So the servant, you know, I got some good news. Always, be, always good to have good news when you're a servant, right? Can I go find my master? And as he's coming back, and this is the next day, so he stopped en route, spent the night. This is the next day. He runs into him, and we find this information exchanged. And the question is asked here: At what time? At what time? And as he connects the dot, it was the exact same moment when Jesus says he will. Two key words here. He knew and he believed. Now, we're talking here about when it comes to spiritual things, seeing is not believing. In fact, the reality is that believing is seeing. When he heard from the servant that his son was alive, and the very moment that that took place, there was this knowledge that was certain, and he could see now what he had already believed, what he already understood to be true. He knew. He didn't see with his eyes, his physical eyes. He saw with his heart as he trusted what Jesus had said to him and told him to do. And not only do we know that that was true, but the fact that he communicated what had taken place with his family, he also, by his conviction that this is is the Savior of the world, this is Jesus, he believed and so did his household. In other words, he just believed it passionately that it's Jesus and his word that said this. Now, I want to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We've got a couple of minutes here. I think this is really important for us to acknowledge and to kind of bring together into this passage. Hebrews 11, of course, is the passage that's all about faith, right? Um, you know, without faith, it is what? It's impossible to please God. Now, faith is the substance of things. hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, Right? I mean, these, these are all words now that all start to connect. Faith is the substance of things, the, the certainty of things hoped for, the evidence, the proof of things not seen. And we, we that's what we're seeing in this passage, where in this story is this faith that isn't necessarily seen, but it's believed. And I, when it's believed, ultimately he is able to see the fruit of what he has seen. But I want us to notice. Chapter 11, verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. And then it go down through here, it talks about creation, talks about Abel and Noah and Abraham and Sarah. Now look at verse 13 of Hebrews 11. We've we got to get what's going on here. These all died in faith, meaning in this attitude, in this mode, in this embracing of, of, of the promises of God, not having received the things promised. Does that mean that God failed? Does that mean they didn't have enough faith? No. They had plenty of faith. And their faith was in a promise. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Well, guys, here's here's the point, right? By faith, they saw the promises. Faith sees the unseen. It believes what... um, it, sorry, it's, it believes and then ultimately sees the promises. On the basis of Jesus' words, the nobleman saw his little boy healthy and well. We will not always have the privilege of actually experiencing the promises in our lives that God gives us. How many have children? How many have children and you know that God says, you know, do your part as a parent and your children will be blessed. Whatever that means, and you're saying, oh, God, I'm, I'm doing my part. I'm raising them up. I'm, I'm trying to do my best. And, and so you, you may even end up being on that deathbed confident in the promise that God has given you about your children, right? But you don't necessarily, you may not necessarily have the privilege of seeing that take place. I mean, my example would be it was just over a year ago my dad passed away. And I talked to my dad about the possibility of us starting a church. He never got to experience that. But he knew about it. But he never saw the fruit of it. And here are all these people that experienced faith. They exercised faith in the promise of God. But not all of them actually experienced the answer or the fulfillment of that prophecy and, uh, and those promises in their lives. And that, that can be true for us. We may, must be careful that we're not expecting those things to happen right away. The nobleman happened to get it right away. Now, What we have here then ultimately is a sign. It's it's called the second sign. It's not the only sign, but the second sign that took place in Galilee. And the sign there ultimately is pointing to the fact that Jesus is God, that he is the Messiah. And um, we are being mindful by this incredible healing as to who he is. Now, I have some concluding thoughts. They are what I'm calling a dog's breakfast. You know what a dog's breakfast is? A little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of everything. I'm just going to pull a number of things from this passage that, that I think are helpful for us. Because I know some of you are, are in different places in your walk and your struggle. And I just, I think this would be helpful. I'll kind of go through them fast, but uh, hear me. All right, there's a comparison going on. There's a reason why John identifies in this story that um, <clears throat> they were in, Caperna- or sorry, in Cana, says verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water, wine, and at Capernaum, there was an official. I think it's important that he's saying something there. Also, that is the first sign. So there's a comparison here. What is the comparison? Let me just give you some things to think through. Both, in both stories, we have a rebuke. Jesus says in Cana, Woman, the hour has not come, right? Soft, gentle rebuke here, unless you see the signs. won't believe. In both stories, miracles take place at a distance. Jesus didn't actually physically go to the water and stick his finger in there and say, ah, now it's turned into wine. He spoke it from a distance, a short distance. In our story, it's a 25-mile distance. Both stories, interestingly enough, mention servants who have inside knowledge of what happened. Cana the servants are told, put water in here, and it comes out wine. I mean, as they're serving, it's like, what's this? In this story, the servants have inside knowledge as to, I mean, before everyone else does, right? Because the no one will tell the servant. And now, they're, I wonder what the rest of that journey was like, right? That servant has an awareness of what's going on. Both accounts conclude with a list of people who, after the miracle, believed. Now, those are some interesting comparisons um, I think, though, what's significant here is this, that there's also a difference. And the significant difference is this. In the first account, in Cana, the context was celebration and joy. And this context, what is, what is going on? Anxiety, struggle, desperation, a dreadful shadow of death. And friends, here's the point. Jesus is our savior is our master is our messiah in both times of joy and in times of difficulty and struggle in times of joy we praise him we celebrate him in times of difficulty and struggle we praise him we celebrate him he is still god he is still the messiah In both those scenarios. The second thing here is just the the important place of the word in the story. It was his word. It was based on his word that this man left and went. Because Jesus spoke it. He said it. He did it. And he obeyed it. And as we've talked about, we may not be in the physical presence of Christ. Today, we may not hear him speak audibly. We may not sit under his teaching. But we we do have his word. It is trustworthy. It is clear. It is relevant. It is how he speaks to us by virtue of his Holy Spirit through his word. And I would just encourage you, don't just pull out your Bible on a Sunday. Get in the habit of loving it, studying it having regular time in it, because that is how you commune with the master, with the Savior. His word is central to all that we do. I think there's also an issue here of time and space, and we've touched on that, right? God's timing is not our timing, right? Space. Jesus doesn't have to be present in order to provide an answer or healing or a solution. He can be 25 miles away, and he can speak it, and it can happen. To be sure, he may not be physically present here, but he knows what you're going through. He knows your struggles, and when you pray to him, he answers, and he gives answers that will be effective. Distance and space and time are irrelevant. The physical and the spiritual. At the end of the day, think about this. What do you think was most important to this official, to this nobleman? The fact that his son was healed physically or the fact that his household was, was restored eternally? What's the answer? Huh? Hey, better to have your eternity restored than your life, than a limb that's been Fixed, or a demon cast out, or all those things. Listen, your eternity is far more important. Here's where here's where we trip up. When we're so consumed with the signs and wonders, we're thinking about the here and now. We're not thinking about what God is really doing and preparing us for an eternity with Him. Now, listen. So many of us are struggling with health issues, and all this. I mean, life is full of that, right? It doesn't mean that it's unimportant, that God doesn't care. He does. He's compassionate. He's powerful. He answers prayers in those realms. But ultimately, he is most concerned about conforming us to the image of his Son and preparing us for eternity. And so we go through those struggles saying, God, you know, this is hard. I really don't like this. But I know that you are accomplishing your purpose through this trial for your glory. That's why James says, when you fall into trials, what? Count it all joy. And then I would also like to say this, that these truths are for everyone. In the the few chapters that we've looked at, get this, John has has shown us that Jesus uh, has has been working in three different regions. In Judea, that would be Jerusalem, in Samaria, and in Galilee. He has shown that Jesus... um, with the rich and the poor, with the educated and with the uneducated, with the Jews and the Samaritans, with the religious and the irreligious. He has shown Jesus as the light of the world, as the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, as the savior of the world. In other words, John has shown that Jesus is for everyone. And friends, you are part of everyone. Jesus is speaking to you. And I would just want to conclude with these two passages of scriptures that are not from John's gospel, but he speaks to us now, and he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And he also says in Matthew's gospel, chapter 11, and verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, listen, we serve an incredible Savior, but seeing isn't always believing. When it comes to our walk with God, we're, we believe because He says, and then we ultimately see what He is doing with that belief. That is His way, that is His purpose. Lord, help us today to grasp the truths that are contained in this passage. Thank you, Lord, for your patience with us. Thank you, Lord, for, for teaching us about our tendency and our, 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 our ability to drift toward the superficial. And Lord, help us see afresh the need for us to grow in our faith and to trust you at your word. And Lord, to see that you work through your word by virtue of your Holy Spirit into our lives. And Lord, help us to, to believe And, Lord, in that believing to see then your hand at work, Lord, as parents are are raising their kids and they're struggling maybe with some rebellion and they're they're standing for you but they're not seeing results, Lord, help them to believe that in what they're doing, Lord, you are accomplishing your purposes. Help that husband and wife who seem to be in conflict, who are trying to work through that conflict and try to do it in in your way, Lord, that even though it's messy, that, that, that doing it, For your glory, Lord, will will yield a fruit, Lord, that is the result of their belief that you are central into their lives. Lord, for we who are going through health or struggles or looking for work or financial difficulty, Lord, help us to to rise out of those things, recognize them for what they are, but to believe that you are our Savior, that you are accomplishing your purposes. And when we believe those truths, Lord, we will see the fruit of our belief Lord, effective in the lives that we live for your glory. You know our situations. You know our struggles, Lord. And you don't have to be physically present. But, Lord, we know that you are present by virtue of your Holy Spirit, who is always with us. We we no longer, we never have to say, Lord, please be with us, although we do, because you always are. Help us to be reminded, Lord, that that presence is a means by which you want to comfort us and guide us and strengthen us, Lord, to be obedient, to follow the wise counsel, Lord, you've given us in your word. Now, Lord, as we pause and we celebrate what you have accomplished on the cross, Lord, what you have done to even give us this freedom to see life afresh, would you allow us to come and, Lord, to humble ourselves before you. Lord, some people today are coming heavy-laden, um, burdened down, and, Lord, they're looking for rest. And, Lord, would, would our time around the table today be a means by which we can be, uh, Lord, reacclimated to you, Lord, that our, our sin can be confessed, that we can once again rejoice in the salvation that we have in you and the benefits that come with that, Lord. Would you now have freedom to accomplish your purposes through this time for your glory? We ask this in your name. Amen.